Hello and welcome to the Voices of Sustainability. My name is Bella Bauma and I will be your host for today's episode. So today's episode is going to be very special because we have an interview by Dr. David Myers, who is in the Department of Psychology at Hope College, along with Dr. Stephen Bauma Prediger, who is in the Department of Religion at Hope College, and they will be talking to us about the topic of ethical and religious implications of climate change. So with that being said, we'll jump right into it. I'm David Myers, a Hope College social psychologist, and I'm here on behalf of the Holland and Climate Collaborative to interview my distinguished colleague, Professor Stephen Bowman Prediger, uh, who is not only a member of the religion department, uh, but also my next door neighbor, uh, <laughs> I'm proud to say. Uh, Steve is a graduate of uh, Hope College who went on to do a Master of Divinity at Fuller Seminary, a PhD in Religious Studies at the University of Chicago. He's been a professor at North Park University. And now for the last quarter century and a little more, a uh, professor here at Hope College where he's been, he's, he's won multiple uh, accolades and awards for both his teaching and his scholarship. So Steve, I thought I'd start just by asking you your life story. How did you get from being a math computer science major back in the late 1970s to somebody who's written books about earthkeeping and creation care? That's a very interesting question, and you're not the first person to uh, ask me that. Uh, it's a combination of things. I got a good liberal arts education at Hope College, including taking a social psychology course from you, as uh, you probably long forgotten me, but I don't forget that class. It was a uh, uh, mind-changing in many ways, and lots of other courses in religion, philosophy, even though I was, as you say, a math computer science major. But probably the biggest factor was um, working at a Reformed Church in America church camp called Camp Manitoba, south of Chicago, the summer before my senior year at Hope. Paul Ransford, himself a Hope graduate, the director, asked me for reasons I've never figured out because I have no experience at that time in leading wilderness trips, asked me to co-lead a wilderness canoeing trip in the Boundary Waters Canoeary Wilderness of Northeastern Minnesota. And I fell in love with canoeing and with wild places. And for four years, 1980 through 83, uh, ran uh, as a, was a leader of a, a organization called the Wilderness Adventures, which was formed in the Reformed Church in America, Michigan area, Michigan Synod. And I led wilderness trips all over the country, Colorado, Rockies, North, Carolina, the Smoky Mountains, Boundary Waters, bicycling, canoeing, backpacking. Um, this is why you were still a student? I was a graduate student. Yeah, oh, a graduate I, I, student. Yeah, in the summers. I'd come home for two years in Toronto and then California, right. and I'd lead wilderness trips all summer. And that was probably the most um, influential factor. It forced me to reread the Bible, to reinterpret the Christian tradition, and it put me on a path which I didn't realize at the time in terms of my scholarship when it came to choosing a dissertation topic at the University of Chicago in the late 80s. I uh, chose uh, Ecological Theology and Ethics. My first book, The Greening of Theology, was a revised version of my doctoral dissertation. So my career the last 30 years as a scholar and teacher has been shaped by that summer long ago of um, being a camp counselor and leading a wilderness trip. And yet some people might hear you talking about earthkeeping and creation care and say, hold it. 
we are the children of God. We are the apex of creation. Genesis 1 says, God bless them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. Isn't there, aren't, aren't we, isn't the creation there for us to enjoy, even exploit for our own good use? And, and then I, I kind of relates to a broader question. I mean, taking that kind of thinking to heart, has the church sometimes been a problem rather than the solution when it comes to creation care? Those are both great questions, and I'll start with the latter, and the answer is simply and honestly yes, the church has been a problem. Indeed, all religions have in various ways aided and abetted the exploitation of our home planet. Um, but also all religions, including Christianity, have tremendous resources, often unknown to people in that very tradition, resources that uh, teach us that um, we ought to be caretakers and earth, what I call earth keepers. The Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition, for example, those texts you referred to, that's the classic text that everyone often cites, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, where we're called to translation, subdue and have dominion. But just next door in Genesis 2, we are Adam because we're made from the Adama, earth creatures made from the earth. And in Genesis 2, 15, what I call the Chicago cop car verse, because that's written on the side of every Chicago police car, we're called to serve and protect or protect and serve, avad and shamar creation. So we're given this, this task in Genesis 2, which I take, take it as a way of, of further specifying what it means to exercise dominion. Dominion does not mean domination, even though many Christians have interpreted that text in that way. Uh, dominion means serving and protecting. So that means, yes, there is use value to other creatures. I mean, we need clothing, we need to eat, but uh, the created world isn't just valuable because of its utility or usefulness to us. It's valuable in and for itself. It has what ethicists call intrinsic or inherent value. And as Christians, we say it's valuable simply because God made it. Even if we weren't here, if Homo sapien didn't exist, the world would still be an incredibly valuable place because, uh, because it's valuable to God. So we ought to complement our sense of creation being useful to us with the sense that it's valuable irrespective of its usefulness to us. So, so that's a biblical theology that kind of underlies earth keeping and creation care. Can we take it in a more practical direction? What has the church actually done either to undermine creation care or in practical ways, what has it done and what can it be doing to support it? Yeah, well, that's a great, another great question. Again, there are sins here of both omission and commission. Um, and before I forget, let me just uh, a little quick plug here. There's a whole series of books published in the last 25 years by Harvard University Press Here's the one on Christianity, Christianity and Ecology. It's uh, 450 pages long, but there are also books on Islam and Ecology, Judaism and Ecology, Taoism, Confucianism, Hinduism, indigenous traditions and Ecology. There's this whole series of 10 books long where you can dive deeply into this issue to answer precisely this question. Essays by scholars who say, who talk about how, Christianity or Islam or Judaism has contributed to our ecological problems and the degradation of the planet, 
but also, and here's the main point, the ways in which that religious tradition uh, can help us take better care of creation. One example being the one I just gave you of reading Genesis 2 with Genesis 1. And if you're a Jew, that's the Hebrew Bible, a Christian, the Old Testament, and taking that seriously. Or to look at the last book of the Bible, the book of the Apocalypse or Revelation, which no one reads, but everyone thinks they understand. The last two chapters of Revelation talk about God's good future as being a renewed heaven on earth. Heaven comes down to earth. We don't go to heaven. And God's good future is of flourishing of all creation, all creatures in this kind of heaven on earth or earth in heaven, call it what you will. So the Bible begins and ends. I've never heard a sermon. I'm still waiting on this one. I've preached it, but I've never heard another. The Bible begins and ends with rivers and trees. Rivers and trees, first two chapters of Genesis, last two chapters of Revelation. So that's simply hinting at one of the ways in which if we would reread the Bible with a kind of attentiveness to creation, we would see that there's much more in scripture and much more in the Christian tradition besides Francis of Assisi in the 13th century. There's much more there that could help us as Christians take, be motivated to take better care of creation. You know, that's a beautiful vision and, and beautifully stated, Steve. But I want to take you from the ivory tower and bring you down to the streets here in Holland, Michigan, because okay. we're having this conversation at the invitation of the Holland Climate Collaborative. So what does this say about the moral responsibility of government and even our local government as we sit here not many miles from a coal-producing power plant on Lake Michigan just north of us? Uh, where does that lead us in practical terms? That's... Uh... A great question. Let me just back up a little bit before I answer that. Uh, I'm looking at a New York Times article uh, just a week ago um, that it acknowledges what I've been following, tracking, that scientists have said that the year 2020 is a tie with 2016 is the hottest year on record. And in fact, the 10 hottest years since we've been taking uh, careful measurements back to 1880, in 140 years, the 10 hottest years have been the last 11 years. Now put that in conjunction with uh, email I just got from my old friend, Jim Hansen, who is the leader, director of the Goddard Institute for Space Studies oh, wow. yeah. at Columbia University. We met years ago at a gathering of climate scientists and evangelical Christians. He was a prophet early on. He was. He's now retired, but he has a, a, a blog post and email. I'm on his email list. And he's quoting his 10-year-old grandson, Connor. And there's a picture of Connor and Jake with uh, cowboy hats on in this email. And this is just uh, 13th of January, 2021. He quotes his grandson, Connor. If we keep doing what we're doing now, then the environment will be ruined when the people who are kids are now grown-ups. And unless we can figure out how to make a time machine that actually works, there will be no way to go back in time to fix it. And here's the line that struck me from Jim Hansen's 10-year-old grandson. It's not fair that the grown-ups now are ruining the atmosphere for the grown-ups in the future, end quote. And that goes you know, That along. reminds me of a, a concept that's very appropriate to the pandemic right now. We're asking young adults to mask up, socially distance and so forth, even though they're at minimal risk. But we're asking them to do that, not only for their own sake, but to protect those of us who are older. 
from the community spread. And in return, what they need from us is to protect them from what's not likely to endanger me as an almost 80 year old, but them. And so this is a form of intergenerational altruism. I need to, to care for their future welfare, even as they are now doing it for me on my campus by all masking up and so forth. Exactly, it's a great point. You just mentioned one of the terms, intergenerational um, altruism. Altruism. Well, the, the term that's been, uh, that I run into in my reading of literature is intergenerational justice. Yes. Here's a good example of intergenerational equity or justice. The 10 year old kid who's saying, hey, wait, it's not fair. There's the claim, right? It's unjust right. to be left with a planet that that you, Grandpa, and your generation exactly have trashed, and now right. my generation, Mike, as I grow up, I have to deal with the consequences of what you left for us. Exactly, which is sort of the flip side of one of the most powerful arguments I've found in giving talks all over, literally the world, but especially in churches. When I talk to a group of church folk, especially older folk in the crowd, I have a whole list of ten reasons to care for creation, and the one that I find often most compelling is the future generations argument. All right. the, grandparents, the grandparents in the room all wanna say, you know, I want the world to be a better place for Connor and exactly. you know, Crystal and you know, my grandchildren. Exactly, exactly. So, well, our time's about up, but let me just close by asking you, you're speaking of the church, what can the church do? And I'm also wondering, is there any word of hope for the future or is it, are, are you really gloom and doom? That's a great question and one that uh, almost always comes up in any talk. Um, and there's a lot the church can do. Uh, we Christians as individuals and individual members of churches as denominations. I was on a Zoom call yesterday in the Theology Commission. We're actually talking about some of these issues there. But uh, I go back to something, and you maybe have forgotten this, but you sent me, literally tore out a page from Science, Journal Science, June 2018, a little editorial by Catherine Hayhoe, who I know again from my travels in the right. evangelical climate uh, care, care world. And she identifies apathy and despair as two of the most dangerous things today. Let me just read a small quote. Sadly, the most dangerous myth that many people have bought into is, quote, it doesn't matter to me. And the second most dangerous myth is there's nothing I can do about it. And she goes on to, to basically debunk both of those myths, this sense that uh, this doesn't matter. I can be apathetic or indifferent to this uh, and that uh, there's nothing I can do about it. To the first myth, I usually ask this question, how many of you breathed? And I ask for a show of hands in a classroom or an audience when I'm speaking. And of course, everyone's hand goes up and they wonder why. And they say, well, then you ought to thank a tree. After this talk is over, go hug a tree because trees, among other organisms, provide us with the oxygen that we need, that every cell in our body needs in order to survive. Or better yet, go hug some algae in the local lake because a lot of that oxygen doesn't come from terrestrial trees. It comes from the oceans and organisms in the ocean. And and so we ought not be apathetic. We have self-interested reasons, let alone altruistic reasons like caring right. for the earth because of our grandchildren. There are lots of good reasons not to be apathetic and despair too. Many 
people say, you know, this is a huge problem. Global climate change truly is a global problem. And the danger is that we give up hope, which is what despair means etymologically, desperare. But we're not, we're not at a point, the scientists tell us, we could be soon, but we're not at a point of no return. There are many things that we can do, again, individually, in our churches, in our local communities, and at larger levels like our government. Um, and as a Christian, we believe in that good future, that we are, we are called to bear witness to that good future, even if it looks dark and gloomy. We're still called, regardless of the consequences, to bear witness to God's good future of shalom, uh, regardless of what the future may look like from what you know people say. It looks dark, but we're called to be people of hope. And those of us at Hope College, <laughs> of all places, ought to be espousing this disposition of hope. Stephen Bowman Prediger, you bring honor to Hope College. Um, I like to think you bring honor to 12th Street. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being a prophet and keep on with your work. Thank you very much. Okay. God bless. You too. Thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on our Instagram at Haas underscore Hope College and stay tuned for the next episode.